thought about what the world would be like, what your life would be like, what the church would be like without the Holy Spirit. On a more personal level, what would you be like if the Holy Spirit had not come? You try a little exercise this week, maybe right now, mentally in your mind. But this week during your devotional time, if you have one, if you don't, make one. <laughs> Grab a piece of paper and a pencil and simply make a list of what might be different in your life if the helper, the counselor, the comforter hadn't come. Try that little exercise. What would some of the consequences of your life be? What difficulties would you have encountered? What are the consequences that would result? It's a sobering exercise. But it's an important exercise because by doing it, we come face to face with the reality that without the Holy Spirit, we'd be in the deep weeds, to put it mildly. Without him, spiritually, we would have no direction whatsoever. No discernment, no, dis no security, no enlightenment, no way of understanding the truth, no way of remembering the truth, or even recognizing the truth if we happened upon it. There would be no power to witness, no internal warning system of danger, spiritually speaking. No light in the darkness, no joy in the Lord, no stability in the storms of life, no safe passage home. We would be like a ship lost at sea without a compass. Navigation would be next to impossible. It would be hit or miss. And suffice it to say that I believe life would be more missed than hit. In a very real sense, the Holy Spirit is our spiritual compass, our living lighthouse. And we need Him desperately every moment of our lives. As we stand facing another day, uh, another week, another year, another decade, whatever, I believe we, you and I, are like ships at sea. On the horizon, a storm is brewing. And it threatens to toss every believer into a place in which clear-cut decisions must be made. And in that place, spiritual discernment is a top priority. The church can no longer act as if it is in the middle of a dead calm. Strange things have happened over the years and are happening in our world and in the church. Spiritual activity, both evil and good, seems to be increasing in intensity, would you say? Let me think about some years ago, for example, maybe five, six, seven, even ten years ago. There were reports all over the world of healings, powerful manifestations of the Spirit, similar to Pentecost. Prophetic dreams and visions were reportedly taking place in the church communities in different parts of the world, and lives were seemingly being transformed and changed. Large numbers of people were being overcome by fits of uncontrollable laughter, weeping, shrieking, roaring, physical convulsions, claiming they were soaked in the Spirit. 
or drunk on the new wine of the Spirit. Some claimed that it was a revival. Others claimed it was an apostasy. Books have been written. All kinds of things have taken place. And over the course of Christian history, similar supernatural phenomena have occurred in waves frequently crossing geographical as well as denominational lines. And surely it will happen again. Every one of us in this room needs to know how to respond to that. If you think that we're in the middle of a, a calm time right now, or if you haven't been exposed to or confronted by any of what I just mentioned yet, hold on, because before Jesus returns it's, and before it's all said and done, you will. You will. Now can you see how important it is that Jesus left us with another helper? Spiritual navigation requires a reliable compass. And the Holy Spirit is that compass. Basically, He is the lighthouse that enables us to navigate the raging sea of spiritual confusion. What's He do? He warns us of potential dangers. He signals us where there is safe harbor. He is a towering, unmovable, and He is stronger than any storm, and He shines brightest in the densest fog. That's the Holy Spirit. That is the power of the lighthouse. That is the nature of the Spirit's ministry. That is the reason that Jesus put Him in our hearts. But the question is, will we obey His counsel and navigate the days ahead accordingly? Because the importance of living according to the guiding force of the lighthouse is critical. Nothing captures that truth better than the reality of Frank Koch's experience as he once recounted it in Proceedings, the magazine of the Naval Institute. Listen to what he writes. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. Visibility was poor, patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing of the bridge reported light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern, the captain called out. Lookout replied, steady captain, which means we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. Captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship, we are on a collision course, advise you to change course 20 degrees. Back came a signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. Captain said, send, I'm a captain. Change your course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class, came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was absolutely furious and he spat out, send, I'm a battleship. Change course 20 degrees, and back came the flashing light, I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> the captain said, we changed course. <laughs> An incredibly wise move. 
See, impeccable decisions must be made when we're up against immovable powers, right? Cecil B. DeMille made an insightful statement regarding the principles contained in his monumental film, The Ten Commandments. This is what he said. He said, quote, It is impossible for us to break the law. We can only break ourselves against the law. Now, the importance of navigating according to the lighthouse that God has given us, the Holy Spirit, cannot be stated emphatically enough. As someone put it, the laws of the lighthouse contain more than just good ideas, personal preferences, and honest opinion. They are God-given, time-tested truths that define the way you should navigate your life. Observe them and enjoy secure passage. Ignore them and crash against the ragged rocks of reality. Navigating the course of your life requires reliable guidance. And there's a lot of confusing stuff out there in the world and in the church. Believe it or not, we have such a guide that will guide us into safe truth. The Apostle John called him the anointing. The anointing. And through the Apostle John, he has revealed to us a few principles to navigate by. You can call them the laws of the lighthouse. You can call them necessities for navigation. Call them whatever you want to call them. But by all means, do not ignore them. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses... um, I'm going to read to you verses 18 to 27. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. I want to give you a list of the laws of the lighthouse from this passage, okay? Things we cannot ignore. The first one is this. Recognize the time in which we live. Recognize the time in which we live. Children, in verse 18, it is the last hour. We are in the last days. 
Now, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm stating a biblical truth. Theologically speaking, we have been in quote-unquote last days since Christ ascended in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Because every day draws one day closer to the promised return of Jesus Christ and with it all the characteristics that will accompany that day. Amen? What are some of those defining characteristics? I'd like to look at a couple. The first one is this. The last days will be increasingly marked by the deceptive activity of Satan. Let me repeat that. The last days will be increasingly marked by the deceptive activity of Satan. Hold your finger in 1 John. I just want to flow through a few passages really quickly. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2. There's going to be a falling away, a deception by false teachers. Listen to these words. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, realize this, Paul writes, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. What, what's he talking about? The day of the Lord. It will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Look at verse 9. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? Jude, verse 17. You, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And if you have time this week, read Matthew chapter 24. The signs are tribulation, a lack of love, false Christs, deceptive signs and wonders, 
anti-Christian activity will abound as well as the appearance of the Antichrist himself at the very end. The last days will be increasingly marked by the deceptive activity of Satan. And it's happening now. We can see it happening now. At the same time, however, you also need to recognize the time in which we live in that the last days will also be marked by the powerful activity of God. Somebody say amen to that. Thank you. Make sure you're still with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As the end of the age approaches, the Bible seems to affirm that there will be a marked increase in spiritual activity, both of God and of Satan. Spiritual activity that is both genuine and counterfeit. One is designed to lead people to the truth. The other is designed to lead people astray. It is therefore extremely important that you and I Discern carefully which is which. Isn't that right? And we cannot be so naive to think that it will be easy to discern it. And you know why I say that? Because Jesus said. Jesus himself warned that in the time preceding his return that, quote, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. The deception will obviously, from those words, be very, very convincing if it is designed to mislead true Christians. It's not going to be that easy to spot. All the more important, all the more reason why we must understand the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Classic Twilight Zone episode. An American on a walking trip through Central Europe gets caught in a raging storm. Staggering through the blinding rain, he chances upon a, an imposing medieval castle. It is the hermitage for a brotherhood of monks. The reclusive monks reluctantly take him in. Later that night, the American discovers a cell with a man locked inside. An ancient wooden staff bolts the door, and the prisoner claims he's being held captive by the insane head monk, Brother Jerome. He pleads for the American to release him. The prisoner's kindly face and gentle voice win him over. 
So the American confronts Brother Jerome who declares that the prisoner is actually none other than Satan himself. The father of lies, held captive by the staff of truth. The one barrier that he cannot pass. This incredible claim convinces beyond a shadow of a doubt the American that Jerome is indeed out of his mind and mad. So as soon as he gets the chance, he releases the prisoner who immediately transforms into a hideous horned demon and vanishes off in a puff of smoke. The stunned American is horrified at the realization of what he has done and Jerome responds sympathetically. I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night in whom you have turned loose upon the world. I didn't believe you, the American said. I saw him and I didn't recognize him. Jerome solemnly observes, that is man's weakness and Satan's strength. Friends, we cannot underestimate the power of Satan to deceive. He is the master deceiver. He comes as an angel of light, not as the prince of darkness. He counterfeits Jesus' miracles convincingly. He impersonates the Father's voice. He mimics the Spirit's grace. He subtly alters biblical truth to manipulate people into believing what is false. And if we ignore those facts given to us by the Word and by the Holy Spirit, even as the elect, we are in danger of being duped. And it can happen. Even the Apostle Paul knew it could happen. That's why he warned the Corinthians so bluntly in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses 3 and 4. Paul writes to them, I am afraid that your minds will be corrupted and that you will abandon your full and pure devotion to Christ in the same way that Eve was deceived by the snake's clever lies. For you gladly tolerate anyone who comes to you and preaches a different Jesus. Not the one we preached. And you accept a spirit and a gospel completely different from the spirit and the gospel you received from us. See, it was even happening that early in the church. Listen closely, friends. I would never want to be an obstacle in your spiritual growth and freedom in Christ. That is not my concern. I do not want to be that. It is not my desire to scare you away from experiencing all that God has for you in the realm of His Spirit. Never would I want to be an obstacle in the way of that. By no means would I ever want to discourage you from growing closer to Jesus. But in navigating the churning waters of spiritual truth, we must not ignore the laws of the lighthouse. How do we deal with things like manifestations of power and signs and wonders and all that Satan and, and maybe God may be performing in our world. How do we deal with those things? Well, we must never forget that God is still at work in our world. He is. And in dramatic and spectacular ways. 
And we don't want to miss him in the midst of our skepticism. Yet as John White writes in his book, When the Spirit Comes with Power, quote, something is certainly going on and that something seems potent. Is it revival? Is it from God? We must be cautious in evaluating anything new. Many new movements are mediocre and a few extremely dangerous. False fire burns fiercely. An angel of light still spreads his wings and the elect still continue to be deceived. Unquote. You know what we must be like? We must be like the sons of Issachar who came to the aid of David as he navigated a storm in a very crucial time in the Old Testament. It is said of the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, that they were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. That's what we must be. Men and women who understand the times with a knowledge of what the church, what Christians should do. And if we are to spiritually navigate the years ahead, successfully, we must be men and women who recognize these things. And we will gain that knowledge by learning to abide not only by the first law of the lighthouse, but by the second law of the lighthouse as well, which is this. Utilize the tools that you've been given. Utilize the tools that we have received. 1 John, again, verse 20. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. The first and most important tool that you and I have as believers in Christ, and the one upon which we must learn to rely continually, is the anointing of God's Spirit. How many believe that you have the anointing of God's Spirit on you? John says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. There are only three uses of the term that John uses here for anointing in this manner in the New Testament, and they're all right here in this text. It comes from the same Greek word from which we get the term Christ, which means the anointed one. In ancient times, the term was used to refer to the oil used to anoint kings and priests in the Old Testament. Aaron and his sons, for example, were anointed with the sacred anointing oil as they were consecrated and inducted into their office as priests. Now, in the New Testament, the term is used only of the anointing with the Holy Spirit, this particular term. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus, it says, was anointed with the Spirit at his baptism, empowering him for service and identifying him as the Messiah. In Acts chapter 10, in verse 38, Peter says that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul actually says that God has anointed the apostles with implication that all Christians have been anointed with his Spirit. This anointing is none other than the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The same Spirit that came upon Christ has come upon us. 
Now think about that for a minute. Did you hear what I said? The same Spirit that came upon Jesus Christ has come upon you and me. And not only do we bear the name of Christ as Christians, but we share in his anointing. It comes to us from God through him. Let me read you how different translations read in this verse, verse 20. The Living Bible says the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Today's English version, the Good News Bible says, but you have had the Holy Spirit poured out on you by Christ. The ESV says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And of course, here in the New American Standard, it says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. Notice that originally and literally what it says is not what the King James reads. The King James Version says it this way. You know all things. If you have a King James, that's probably what it says. But the original seems to suggest rather, you all know. In other words, it's for everyone who comes to Christ. John was writing to counter a philosophy in his day known as Gnosticism. And the word means knowledge, special knowledge. This sect claimed that they had higher spirituality through a special knowledge and only the initiated ones could obtain it. In contrast, what John is saying here, he's writing to Christians and he's saying you all have been initiated when you received the spirit of truth. When you became believers in Christ, you all know the truth. There's something else important here that you need to recognize is that the word John uses here when he writes you all know refers to this innate kind of knowledge. The word know refers to a knowledge gained not by accumulating facts and experiences but by an inner awareness of the truth. That's the anointing that John's talking about. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He's an invisible and reliable compass always pointing us to true north. One man put it this way, when you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Spirit, you have the anointing. You know something that cannot be taught and cannot be learned. You have a discernment, a built-in awareness, an inner compass. I want to give you seven important characteristics of that anointing that come right out of these verses. I'm not going to develop them, so don't worry. I'm just going to list them for you. You can pick them out right from the text. Number one, this anointing is from God. Verse 20 says that. Second, it is for every believer. Verse 20 says that. Third, it is connected with knowledge. Therefore, we can know, we can discern, we can be sure. Verses 20 and 21. Fourth thing is that it happens once at conversion. Verse 27 says, as for you, the anointing which you received. And, and the grammatical text of that word is a past, it's, it's, it's a tense in which it means it happened once for all time with continuing results into the future. Number five, it's permanent and it's continuing. Again, in verse 20, you have received this anointing. 
is a present tense in the, in the grammar, which means it's a continual thing. Number six, it teaches us. Verse 27 says it teaches us. And number seven is it is reliable because it is true. Verse 27. It is trustworthy. Now here's the upshot. If you are Christ's child, born from above, you have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is an indispensable tool for us as we navigate this maze of spiritual confusion in these last days. The question is, do you ever tap in? Do you ever tap in? Or do we simply just jump on the spiritual bandwagon of what's going on all around us without ever checking it out? Tony Evans, I love Tony Evans, he's a great speaker, says that his mother used to tell him, boy, you have a brain. Use it for something other than a hat rack. <laughs> and what she was saying was that, according to Tony, is that I have the capacity for learning that I was not using at the moment. The problem wasn't that I didn't have a brain. The problem was my brain was not in use. Every Christian has the same spiritual capacity when it comes to walking with God. We all have different IQs, but in the spiritual realm, we have the same capacity for intimacy with God. That means you have the capacity to hear the voice of the Spirit. You have it. Every single one of you, if you're in Christ have the innate ability through God's indwelling Holy Spirit to evaluate anything and everything that you encounter from a spiritual standpoint and you can determine whether it is a truth or a lie. You don't need me to do that for you or anyone else. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit, you have the capacity to do it. You have been anointed with the ability to discern. Don't think that it's only super Christians that hear from God. You have the anointing. You have it. Look at verse 20 and 21 again. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I haven't written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, because no lie is of the truth. The question is, are you employing it? For John's audience, it referred directly to evaluating the Gnosticism that was attempting to infiltrate the church at that time. For us, it may be scores of other false teachings that have crept in over the years and continue to arise today. We must utilize the tools we've been given. The primary one is the anointing of God's Spirit. The second one is in verses 22 and 23. It's that we have confessed the truth about God's Son. Look at it. 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. That answers a load of questions that you may have about other religions. Whether or not they are of God or not. The answer is right here. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. It's pretty black and white. There's no gray there. 
doesn't have the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The third thing here is that we have the abiding power of God's word. Look at verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8? About the abiding, if you abide in my word, my words abides in you. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. And if you know the truth, and if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The original gospel that was preached by the apostles about Jesus Christ, his teachings and his saving grace must remain continually in front of us as our standard of measure. The word of God is the plumb line. The doctrines of the Bible are the measuring stick. John says we must let that live in us, abide in us. It won't just happen on its own. We have to allow it to saturate our being. If we do not know the word, then the spirit will have nothing to work with in pointing out error. Right? The word must maintain a vital place in your life and in mine. If you're going to discern the truth, that's precisely how Paul counseled Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13. He said, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing, that from who, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. As I've studied some of the movements throughout recent history that have happened around the world, I've noted that in some cases, many of the bizarre happenings are based more on personal experience than they are on scriptural principle. And who can argue with someone's personal experience, right? The problem is, is that personal experience never overrides biblical truth. Never. The fact is that it happened to me, the, the phrase, it happened to me, should never supersede the Bible says. You get that? As one scholar has wisely warned, to move off the pages of Scripture is to enter into the wastelands of our own subjectivity. And it's true. Exceptional caution should always be exercised in areas and in experiences that are rarely or never addressed in the Scripture, even when experiences resemble those that are described in the Bible. They can still be counterfeit. Remember, Satan's crafty. Consider the examples, for instance, of prophecies and dreams and visions. There's no question that God uses these things to speak to us, even now. I'm convinced of it. Yet the plumb line of God's word always overrides the dream or the vision or the prophetic utterance. Turn quickly to Jeremiah in the Old Testament in, in chapter 23. I'm giving you some tools here. I hope that you're mentally taking them down. Jeremiah 23, verse 25. It's a good principle. 
Good word here by Jeremiah. I have heard what the prophets, God saying, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name. This is Jeremiah 23, 25. Saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The pro now listen to this. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. That's an important text of Scripture. One of the dividing lines of whether or not a prophecy, dream, or a vision is false or true is whether or not it is designed to turn people toward the Lord or distracts them away from Him to something else. That's the dividing line. People may, people may think, well, the Bible says that you can tell a true prophecy if it comes true with 100% accuracy. That's not what the Bible says. If a, if a prophecy comes true with 100% accuracy, that does not necessarily mean that the prophet is a true prophet. But anything less than 100% accuracy, I, it confirms that he is a false prophet. No question about that. But look at Deuteronomy, read it this week. Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 and 22, and Deuteronomy 13, basically the dividing line is whether or not it leads people toward God or away from God. The well-respected English statesman and scholar John Stott said this. This might ruffle some of your feathers. Christians should always be conservative in their theology. Did you get that? They must be conservative in their theology. Now make sure you're translating what that means correctly. To have ears that are always itching for new truth, new experiences, flocking to anybody that claims a new thing is characteristic of the apostasy of the last times. 2 Timothy 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4 talk all about that. Some leaders... At times, I've heard openly accost and mock Christians who exhibit a genuine biblical conservatism, comparing them to Pharisees who would not accept Jesus' teaching. Right? But here's a fact that you can bank on. Jesus never rebuked the Pharisees for being conservative, but because they were wrong. There's a difference. He rebuked them because they were wrong, because they were hypocrites who cared nothing about the truth and because they taught as doctrines the precepts of men. They went outside of biblical doctrine and truth 
We cannot embrace that kind of theology no matter how spiritual it may seem. We must be spiritually discerning in our approach to anything that we hear or read or encounter. That's why Paul counseled the Corinthians with these words, I mean the Thessalonians with these words. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 to 22, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't scoff at prophecies. But test everything. Test everything that is said. Hold on to what's good and keep away from every kind of evil. Now that's the balanced way to deal with things. That's why we are given the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, back in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to wrap this up here pretty soon. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. You see, John has our best interest in mind here. There are too many out there who are attempting to deceive us. Unfortunately, we just fall into this sort of mindlessness as we live the Christian life. Don't we? We do. We walk through life with blinders on, not even trying to see God or listen for His voice. I recently read that mindlessness is a frequent human condition, according to psychologists. Really? In mindlessness, describes one writer, my body is present, but my mind is floating off somewhere on autopilot. Don't believe me? We all suffer from mindlessness from time to time. (laughs) And for some of us, it has become a way of life. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and I want you to give me the first answer that comes to your mind. Okay? All right. Now, now do it aloud, out loud. Scream it right out. Don't be shy. Okay? Okay, let's practice. Will you do it? Say yes. yes. Great. Answer the questions. The tree that grows from an acorn is called an... The vapor that rises from fire is called... The sound a frog makes is called a... The white of an egg is called a... No, it's not. Now, if you didn't say yolk, you are less mindless than I am. See? You're a smart one. Here's another one. Repeat after me. Silk. 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 What's a cow drink? Water. Water, yeah, you're right. It's not milk. See, I made my point. We, we, we just operate on autopilot most of the time. Now, if you and I are going to discern truth from error and navigate wisely, we need to be mindful, not mindless when it comes to spiritual things. Let's learn to utilize the tools that we've been given the anointing of God's Spirit, the confession of God's Son, and the abiding of God's Word. These are the safeguards against spiritual error. And friends, I don't believe we need to have more of God. We were given His fullness when we became His children. That's what the Bible says. We do, however, need to appropriate 
appropriate and act on what's already dwelling within us. God needs to have more of me. God needs to have more of you. And so, the final law of the lighthouse, number three, is this. Exercise the truth by which you've been led. Verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Why can we trust the anointing we received? John states three reasons. Number one, he teaches us about all things, it says. That is, all things necessary to follow the way, the truth, and the life. Remember what Jesus said the Spirit's function was? It was to unfold the spiritual truth. We've already gone over that, the past message. The unraveling of his wisdom. Second thing is, his teaching is trustworthy. And the third thing is, though through it, we can continue to abide in Christ. That's what it says in verse 27. Now, you might have a question in your mind here about verse 27. Does John really advocate that we don't need human teachers? Well, no, that's not what he's saying. Don't exaggerate beyond what John is getting at. Jesus himself commissioned us to teach. I'm teaching right now. The Spirit gives the church gifted men and women who teach. John himself was teaching when he wrote this letter. What we don't need, and what John's getting at, is anyone to teach us something other than God's truth. Some new thing that no one's ever heard of, or things that Scripture never even talks about. Again, Tony Evans says, let me tell you what I think John means here. Since you have the anointing, since your spirit is illuminated by the Holy Spirit, you can put everything you receive through a spiritual grid. You don't need teachers who approach life from a non-Christian perspective. They get real practical. You don't need horoscopes. You don't need to open the newspaper to see what your zodiac sign is telling you to do today. You don't need some natural man or woman who has no spiritual sensitivity whatsoever telling you about your tomorrow. You don't need Oprah. You need God's Holy Spirit telling you about your tomorrow. You also don't need Ouija boards and palm readers and non-Christian therapists. Read verses 21 through 26 of 1 John 2 right here. Again, meditate on it you'll see very clearly that John's concern is false teachers who seek to deceive and mislead God's people. You don't need them. See the connection now? The anointing will guard you from these teachers. The spirit of truth will keep you from the spirit of error. You got a smoke detector in your house? You know how sensitive that device is, right? You don't have to have a fire before that thing goes off, do you? You just have to have smoke. Well, from, you know, somebody burning the cookies. <laughs> or from somebody like me that just celebrated 53 years <laughs> and the candles themselves made the stupid thing go off. <laughs> Even the steam from a boiling tea kettle can sometimes set off a sensitive smoke detector. Listen, listen. When the Holy Spirit has sensitized your human spirit, you know when something's not right spiritually. It's your internal smoke detector. 
Your truth alarm. Your truth alarm should go off when you hear something that's not right, if you're in touch with the Holy Spirit. You may not know exactly what it is that's wrong, but you just know what you're hearing or what you're reading. Something's not right. Holy Spirit is saying, watch out. And when this happens, you are experiencing the Holy Spirit. You want to know what that feels like? That's what it feels like. You're experiencing the Spirit. God has given us this spiritual sensitivity to all believers in Christ. If you don't know the Word and you aren't in touch with the Spirit, you know what you're going to be relying on? What man says. And when you get right down to it, it's not about what man says. It's about what the Holy Spirit is teaching. There is no better teacher than the Holy Spirit. His illumination is second to none. And it's time that we give him a whole lot more credit for leading us. Becoming so in tune with the sound of his voice, so in sync with the pace of his steps, so in touch with the details of his truth, that if something comes up in your life that's just a little bit off kilter, you can detect it right away. And you know what? He gives us that discernment. He gives it to us. You believe that? You have it. Don't discredit it. Because it'll give you peace of mind and of heart. And don't you want that kind of peace? Don't you desire that kind of freedom to walk in this world? I do. Author John McPhee, and I'm going to close with this promise, tells this great story in his book, A Sense of Where You Are. The floor of the Princeton gym was being resurfaced. So Princeton basketball standout and later U.S. Senator Bill Bradley had to put in several practice sessions at the Lawrenceville School. His first afternoon at Lawrenceville, he began shooting 14-foot jump shots from the right side. And he got off to a bad start, and he kept missing them. Six in a row hit the back rim of the basket and bounced out. So he stopped, looked a little discomfited, and seemed to be making an adjustment in his mind, and then he went up for another jump shot from the same spot and hit it cleanly. Four more shots went in without a miss. And then he paused, and he said, you want to know something? He said, that basket is about an inch and a half too low. Some weeks later, the author said, I went back to Lawrenceville with a steel tape, borrowed a stepladder, and measured the height of the basket. It was 9 feet, 10 and 7 eighths inches above the floor, or 1 and 1 eighth inches too low. He knew. Can we trust the Holy Spirit to guide us into safe harbor? You tell me. As a reliable compass, we can trust his direction. As a lighthouse, he will guide us home safely and without regret. We're going to encounter some waves, no question about it, but we will never be sunk as long as we follow his guiding light. He will keep us balanced. He will keep us on course. And not only that, but I can say with all confidence that I think we'll enjoy the ride. Let's pray. Lord, I can't thank you enough for the gift of your Holy Spirit. 
Thank you for that internal smoke detector that goes off inside of us when we know that something isn't quite right. Father, help us to learn to walk more confidently by the Holy Spirit's guidance. Help us to be responsible, Lord God, with saturating ourselves with the Word and through prayer, understanding your will. May we be the sharpest instrument that we can be for the Holy Spirit to use. And I thank you so much, Lord, that you gave us the Spirit. And as you said, if you hadn't gone away, we wouldn't have this great benefit. And I know, Lord God, that it's only through your death and burial that we would have the Spirit right now. And so as we go to this communion table, I want to remember and thank you for your gift of grace and mercy, for the sacrifice that you made for us and the promise of the gift of the Spirit that you gave to us. Help us to look deep within our hearts right now, Lord God, and discern where we have gone off track. Confess it, repent of it, and then partake of this table with joy and with peace. Confessing the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen.